Good evening. Welcome to the Just Sleep Podcast. I'm Tasha, your host. Every week, I will read you an old story to help you relax, put the stressful day behind you, and drift off to sleep. Occasionally, we will run ads in order to cover the costs of the production of the podcast. Rest assured, there will be no ads during or after the story. If you prefer an ad-free and intro-free show, you can join Just Sleep Premium. Visit justsleeppodcast.com slash support for more information. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive in June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive in June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Tonight, I will be continuing the story of the Blue Castle by Lucy Maud Montgomery. So lie down, close your eyes, and let me read you a story. Chapter 4 
Got your rubbers on? Called Cousin Stickles, as Valancy left the house. Christine Stickles had never once forgotten to ask that question when Valancy went out on a damp day. Yes. Have you got your flannel petticoat on? Asked Mrs. Frederick. No. Doss, I really do not understand you. Do you want to catch your death of cold again? Her voice implied that Valancy had died of a cold several times already. Go upstairs this minute and put it on. Mother, I do not need a flannel petticoat. My sateen one is warm enough. Doss, remember you had bronchitis two years ago. Go and do as you are told. Valancy went, though nobody will ever know just how near she came to hurling the rubber plant into the street before she went. She hated that grey flannel petticoat more than any other garment she owned. Olive never had to wear flannel petticoats. Olive wore ruffled silk and sheer lawn and filmy laced flounces. But Olive's father had married money, and Olive never had bronchitis. So there you were. Are you sure you didn't leave the soap in the water? demanded Mrs. Frederick. But Valancy was gone. She turned at the corner and looked back down the ugly, prim, respectable street where she lived. The Sterling house was the ugliest on it, more like a red brick box than anything else. Too high for its breadth, and made still higher by a bulbous glass copula on top. About it was the desolate, barren piece of an old house whose life is lived. There was a very pretty house, with leaded casements and dubbed gables, just around the corner. A new house. One of those houses you love the minute you see them. Clayton Markley had built it for his bride. He was to be married to Jenny Lloyd in June. The little house, it was said, was furnished from attic to cellar, in complete readiness for its mistress. I don't envy Jenny the man, thought Valancy sincerely. Clayton Markley was not one of her many ideals. But I do envy her the house. It's such a nice young house. If I could only have a house of my own, ever so poor, so tiny, but my own. But then, she added bitterly, there's no use in yowling for the moon when you can't even get a tallow candle. In dreamland, nothing would do for Valancy but a castle of pale sapphire. In real life, she would have been fully satisfied with the little house of her own. She envied Jenny Lloyd more fiercely than ever today. Jenny was not so much better looking than she was, and not so much younger. Yet she was to have this delightful house, and the nicest little Wedgwood teacups Valancy had seen them, an open fireplace and monogrammed linen, hem-stitched tablecloths and china closets. Why did everything come to some girls and nothing to others? It wasn't fair. Valancy was once more seething with rebellion as she walked along, a prim, dowdy little figure in her shabby raincoat and three-year-old hat, splashed occasionally by the mud of a passing motor with its insulting shrieks. Motors were still rather novelty in Darewood, though they were common in Port Lawrence, and most of the summer residents up at Muskoka had them. In Darewood, only some of the smart set had them, for even Darewood was divided into sets. There was the smart set, the intellectual set, the old family set, of which the Stirlings were members, the common run, 
and a few pariahs. Not one of the Sterling clan had as yet condescended to a motor, though Olive was teasing her father to have one. Valancy had never even been in a motor car, but she did not hanker after this. In truth, she felt rather afraid of motor cars, especially at night. They seemed to be too much like big purring beasts that might turn and crush you or make some terrible savage leap somewhere. On the steep mountain trails around her blue castle, only gaily caparisoned steeds might proudly pace. In real life, Valancy would have been quite contented to drive in a buggy behind a nice horse. She got a buggy drive only when some uncle or cousin remembered to fling her a chance, like a bone to a dog. Chapter 5 Of course, she must buy the tea in Uncle Benjamin's grocery store. To buy it anywhere else was unthinkable. Yet Valancy hated to go to Uncle Benjamin's store on her 29th birthday. There was no hope that he would not remember it. Why, demanded Uncle Benjamin, leeringly, as he tied up her tea, are young ladies like bad grammarians? Valancy, with her Uncle Benjamin's will in the background of her mind, said meekly, I don't know. Why? Because, chuckled Uncle Benjamin, they can't decline matrimony. The two clerks, Joe Hammond and Claude Bertram, chuckled also, and Valancy disliked them a little more than ever. On the first day Claude Bertram had seen her in the store, she had heard him whisper to Joe, Who is that? And Joe had said, Valancy Sterling, one of the Darewood old maids. Curable or incurable? Claude had asked with a snicker, evidently thinking the question very clever. Valancy smarted anew with the sting of that old recollection. Twenty-nine, Uncle Benjamin was saying, Dear me, Doss, you're dangerously near the second corner and not even thinking of getting married yet. Twenty-nine, it seems impossible. Then Uncle Benjamin said an original thing. Uncle Benjamin said, How time does fly. I think it crawls, said Valancy passionately. Passion was so alien to Uncle Benjamin's conception of Valancy that he didn't know what to make of her. To cover up his confusion, he asked another conundrum as he tied up her beans. Cousin Stickles had remembered at the last moment that they must have beans. Beans were cheap and filling. What two ages are apt to prove illusory? asked Uncle Benjamin, and, not waiting for Valancy to give it up, he added, Marriage and marriage. M-I-R-A-G-E is pronounced mirage, said Valancy shortly, picking up her tea and her beans. For the moment, she did not care whether Uncle Benjamin cut her out of his will or not. She walked out of the store while Uncle Benjamin stared after her with his mouth open. Then he shook his head. Poor Doss has taken it hard, he said. Valancy was sorry by the time she reached the next crossing. Why had she lost her patience like that? Uncle Benjamin would be annoyed and would likely tell her mother that Doss had been impertinent to me and her mother would lecture her for a week. I've held my tongue for twenty years, thought Valancy. Why couldn't I have held it once more? Yes, it was just twenty, Valancy reflected, since she had first been twitted with her loverless condition. She remembered the bitter moment perfectly, 
She was just nine years old, and she was standing alone on the school playground while the other little girls of her class were playing a game in which you must be chosen by a boy as his partner before you could play. Nobody had chosen Valency. Little, pale, black-haired Valency, with her prim, long-sleeved apron and odd eyes. Oh, said a pretty little girl near to her. I'm so sorry for you. You haven't got a bow. Valency had said defiantly, as she continued to say for twenty years, I don't want a bow. But this afternoon, Valency once and for all stopped saying that. I'm going to be honest with myself anyhow, she thought savagely. Uncle Benjamin's riddles hurt me because they are true. I do want to be married. I want a house of my own. I want a husband of my own. I want sweet little fat babies of my own. Valency stopped suddenly aghast at her own recklessness. She felt sure that Reverend Dr. Stalling, who passed her at this moment, read her thoughts and disapproved of them thoroughly. Valency was afraid of Dr. Stalling, had been afraid of him ever since the Sunday, 23 years before, when he had first come to St. Albans. Valency had been too late for Sunday school that day, and she had gone into the church timidly and sat in their pew. No one else was in the church, nobody except the new rector, Dr. Stalling. Dr. Stalling stood up in front of the choir door, beckoned to her, and said sternly, Little boy, come up here. Valency had stared around her. There was no little boy. There was no one in all the church but herself. This strange man with the blue glasses couldn't mean her. She was not a boy. Little boy, repeated Dr. Stalling, more sternly still, shaking his forefinger fiercely at her. Come up here at once. Valency arose as if hypnotized and walked up the aisle. She was too afraid to do anything else. What dreadful thing was going to happen to her? What had happened to her? Had she actually turned into a boy? She came to a stop in front of Dr. Stalling. Dr. Stalling shook his forefinger, such a long, knuckly forefinger, at her and said, Little boy, take off your hat. Valency took off her hat. She had a scrawny little pigtail hanging down her back, but Dr. Stalling was short-sighted and did not perceive it. Little boy, go back to your seat and always take off your hat in church. Remember. Valency went back to her seat, carrying her hat like an automaton. Presently, her mother came in. Doss, said Mrs. Sterling, what do you mean by taking off your hat? Put it on instantly. Valency put it on instantly. She was cold with fear lest Dr. Stalling should immediately summon her up front again. She would have to go, of course. It never occurred to her that one could disobey the rector, and the church was full of people now. But what would she do if that horrible stabbing forefinger were shaken at her again before all those people? Valency sat through the whole service in an agony of dread and was sick for a week afterwards. Nobody knew why. Mrs. Frederick again bemoaned herself of her delicate child. Dr. Stalling found out his mistake and laughed over it to Valency, who did not laugh. She never got over her dread of Dr. Stalling. And now to be caught by him on the street, corner, thinking such things. Valency got her John Foster book, Magic of Wings. His latest, all about birds, said Miss Clarkson. She had almost decided that she would go home instead of going to see Dr. Trent. Her courage had failed her. 
She was afraid of offending Uncle James, afraid of angering her mother, afraid of facing gruff, shaggy-browed old Dr. Trent, who would probably tell her, as he had told Cousin Gladys, that her trouble was entirely imaginary and that she only had it because she liked to have it. No, she would not go. She would get a bottle of Redfern's purple pills instead. Redfern's purple pills were the standard medicine of the Sterling clan. Had they not cured second cousin Geraldine when five doctors had given her up? Valencia always felt very sceptical concerning the virtues of the purple pills, but there might be something in them, and it was easier to take them than to face Dr. Trent alone. She would glance over the magazines in the reading room a few times and then go home. Valencia tried to read a story, but it made her furious. On every page was a picture of the heroine surrounded by adoring men. And here was she, Valencia Sterling, who could not get a solitary bow. Valencia slammed the magazine shut. She opened Magic of Wings. Her eyes fell on the paragraph that changed her life. Fear is the original sin, wrote John Foster. Almost all the evil of the world has its origin in the fact that someone is afraid of something. It is a cold, slimy serpent coiling about you. It is horrible to live with fear, and it is, of all things, degrading. Valency shut magic of wings and stood up. She would go and see Dr. Trent. Chapter 6 The ordeal was not so dreadful after all. Dr. Trent was as gruff and abrupt as usual, but he did not tell her her ailment was imaginary. After he listened to her symptoms and asked a few questions and made a quick examination, he sat for a moment, looking at her quite intently. Valency thought he looked as if he were sorry for her. She caught her breath for a moment. Was the trouble serious? Well, it couldn't be, surely. It really hadn't bothered her much. Only lately had it got a little worse. Dr. Trent opened his mouth, but before he could speak, the telephone at his elbow rang sharply. He picked up the receiver. Valency, watching him, saw his face change suddenly as he listened. Yes, yes, what? Yes, yes. A brief interval. My God. Dr. Trent dropped to the receiver, dashed out of the room, and upstairs without even a glance at Valency. She heard him rushing madly about overhead, barking out a few remarks to somebody, presumably his housekeeper. Then he came tearing downstairs with a club bag in his hand, snatched his hat and coat from the rack, jerked open the street door, and rushed down the street in the direction of the station. Valency sat alone in the little office, feeling more absolutely foolish than she had ever felt before in her life. Foolish and humiliated. So this was all that had come of her heroic determination to live up to John Foster and cast fair aside. Not only was she a failure as a relative and non-existent as a sweetheart or friend, but she was not even of any importance as a patient. Dr. Trent had forgotten her very presence in his excitement over whatever message had come by the telephone. She had gained nothing by ignoring Uncle James and flying in the face of family tradition. For a moment she was afraid she was going to cry. It was also ridiculous. Then she heard Dr. Trent's housekeeper coming down the stairs. Valency rose and went to the office door. The doctor forgot all about me, she said with a twisted smile. 
Well, that's too bad, said Mrs. Patterson, sympathetically. But it wasn't much wonder, poor man. That was a telegram they phoned over from the port. His son has been terribly injured in an auto accident in Montreal. The doctor had just ten minutes to catch the train. I don't know what he'll do if anything happens to Ned. He's just bound up in the boy. He'll have to come again, Miss Sterling. I hope it's nothing serious. Oh no, nothing serious, agreed Valancy. She felt a little less humiliated. It was no wonder poor Dr. Trent had forgotten her at such a moment. Nevertheless, she felt very flat and discouraged as she went down the street. Valancy went home by the shortcut of Lover's Lane. She did not often go through Lover's Lane, but it was getting near supper time, and it would never do to be late. Lover's Lane wound back of the village, under great elms and maples, and deserved its name. It was hard to go there at any time and not find some canoodling couple, or young girls in pairs, arms intertwined, earnestly talking over their secrets. Valancy didn't know which made her feel more self-conscious and uncomfortable. This evening, she encountered both. She met Connie Hale and Kate Bailey in new pink organdy dresses with flowers stuck coquettishly in their glossy, bare hair. Valancy had never had a pink dress or worn flowers in her hair. Then she passed a young couple she didn't know, dandering along, oblivious to everything but themselves. The young man's arm was around the girl's waist quite shamelessly. Valancy had never walked with a man's arm about her. She felt that she ought to be shocked. They might leave that sort of thing for the screening twilight at least. But she wasn't shocked. In another flash of desperate, stark honesty, she owned to herself that she was merely envious. When she passed them, she felt quite sure they were laughing at her, pitying her. There's that little old maid, Valancy Sterling. They say she never had a bowl in her whole life. Valancy fairly ran to get out of Lover's Lane. Never had she felt so utterly colourless and skinny and insignificant. Just where Lover's Lane debauched on the street, an old car was parked. Valancy knew that car well, by sound at least, and everybody in Darewood knew it. This was before the phrase Tin Lizzie had come into circulation, in Darewood at least. But if it had been known, this car was the tiniest of Lizzie's, though it was not a Ford but an old grey Slosson. Nothing more battered and disreputable could be imagined. It was Barney Snaith's car, and Barney himself was just scrambling up from under it, in overalls plastered with mud. Valancy gave him a swift, furtive look as she hurried by. This was only the second time she had ever seen the notorious Barney Snaith, though she had heard enough about him in the five years that he had been living up back in Muskoka. The first time had been nearly a year ago on the Muskoka Road. He had been crawling out from under his car then too, and had given her a cheerful grin as she went by, a little whimsical grin that gave him the look of an amused gnome. He didn't look bad. She didn't believe he was bad, in spite of the wild yarns that were always being told of him. Of course, he went tearing in that terrible old grey slosson through Darewood at hours when all decent people were in bed, often with old, roaring Abel, who made the night hideous with his howls, both of them dead drunk, my dear. And everyone knew that he was an escaped convict and a defaulting bank clerk and a murderer in hiding, and an infidel and an illegitimate son of old roaring 
Abel and the father of Roaring Abel's illegitimate grandchild, and a counterfeiter and a forger, and a few other awful things. But still, Valancy didn't believe he was bad. Nobody with a smile like that could be bad, no matter what he had done. It was that night the Prince of the Blue Castle changed from a being of grim jaw and hair with a dash of premature grey to a rakish individual with overlong tawny hair dashed with red, dark brown eyes, and ears that stuck out just enough to give him an alert look, but not enough to be called flying jibs. But he still retained something a little grim about the jaw. Barney Snaith looked even more disreputable than usual just now. It was very evident that he hadn't shaved for days, and his hands and arms, bare to the shoulders, were black with grease. But he was whistling gleefully to himself, and he seemed so happy that Valancy envied him. She envied him his light-heartedness and his irresponsibility and his mysterious little cabin up on an island in Lake Mistawis, even his rackety old Grace Lawson. Neither he nor his car had to be respectable and live up to traditions. When he rattled past her a few minutes later, bareheaded, leaning back in his lizzie at a rakish angle, his longish hair blowing in the wind, a villainous-looking old black pipe in his mouth. She envied him again. Men had the best of it, no doubt about that. This outlaw was happy, whatever he was or wasn't. She, Valency Sterling, respectable, well-behaved to the last degree, was unhappy, and had always been unhappy. So there you were. Valency was just in time for supper. The sun had clouded over, and a dismal, drizzling rain was falling again. Cousin Stickles had the neuralgia. Valency had to do the family darning, and there was no time for magic of wings. Can't the darning wait till tomorrow, she pleaded. Tomorrow will bring its own duties, said Mrs. Frederick. Valency darned all the evening and listened to Mrs. Frederick and Cousin Stickles talking the eternal, niggling gossip of the clan as they knitted drearily at interminable black stockings. They discussed second cousin Lillian's approaching wedding and all its bearings. On the whole, they approved. Second cousin Lillian was doing well for herself. Though she hasn't hurried, said cousin Stickles. She must be twenty-five. There have not, fortunately, been many old maids in our connection, said Mrs. Frederick bitterly. Valancy flinched. She'd run the darning needle into her finger. Third cousin Aaron Gray had been scratched by a cat and had blood poisoning in his finger. Cats are the most dangerous animals, said Mrs. Frederick. I would never have a cat about the house. She glared significantly at Valancy through her terrible glasses. Once, five years ago, Valancy had asked if she might have a cat. She had never referred to it since, but Mrs. Frederick still suspected her of harboring the unlawful desire in her heart of hearts. Once, Valancy sneezed. Now, in the Sterling Code, it was very bad form to sneeze in public. You can always repress a sneeze by pressing your finger on your upper lip, said Mrs. Frederick, rebukingly. Half past nine o'clock and so, as Mr. Peppis would say, to bed. But first, Cousin Stickle's neurogic back must be rubbed with Redfern's liniment. Valancy did that. Valancy always had to do it. She hated the smell of Redfern's liniment. She hated the smug, beaming, portly, bewhiskered, bespeckled picture of Dr. Redfern on the bottle. 
Her fingers smelled of the horrible stuff after she got into bed, in spite of all the scrubbing she gave them. Valency's day of destiny had come and gone. She ended it as she had begun it, in tears. Chapter 7 There was a rosebush in the little sterling lawn growing beside the gate. It was called Doss's Rosebush. Cousin Georgiana had given it to Valency five years ago, and Valency had planted it joyfully. She loved roses. But, of course, the rosebush never bloomed. That was her luck. Valency did everything she could think of and took the advice of everybody in the clan, but still, the rosebush would not bloom. It throve and grew luxuriantly, with great leafy branches, untouched of rust or spider, but not even a bud had ever appeared on it. Valency, looking at it two days after her birthday, was filled with a sudden overwhelming hatred for it. The thing wouldn't bloom. Very well, then, she would cut it down. She marched to the tool room in the barn for her garden knife and went at the rose bush viciously. A few minutes later, horrified Mrs. Frederick came out to the veranda and beheld her daughter slashing insanely among the rosebush boughs. Half of them were already strewn on the walk. The bush looked sadly dismantled. Doss, what on earth are you doing? Have you gone crazy? No, said Valancy. She meant to say it defiantly, but habit was too strong for her. She said it deprecatingly. I, I just made up my mind to cut this bush down. It is no good. It never blooms, never will bloom. That is no reason for destroying it, said Mrs. Frederick sternly. It was a beautiful bush and quite ornamental. You have made a sorry-looking thing out of it. Rose trees should bloom, said Valancy, a little obstinately. Don't argue with me, Doss. Clear up that mess and leave the bush alone. I don't know what Georgiana will say when she sees how you've hacked it to pieces. Really, I'm surprised at you. And to do it without consulting me. The bush is mine muttered Valancy. What's that? What did you say, Doss? I only said the bush was mine, repeated Valancy, humbly. Mrs. Frederick turned without a word and marched back into the house. The mischief was done now. Valancy knew she had offended her mother deeply and would not be spoken to or noticed in any way for two or three days. Cousin Stickles would see to Valancy's bringing up but Mrs. Frederick would preserve the stony silence of outraged majesty. Valancy sighed and put away her garden knife, hanging it precisely on its precise nail in the tool shop. She cleared away the several branches and swept up the leaves. Her lips twitched as she looked at the straggling bush. It had an odd resemblance to its shaken, scrawny donor, little cousin Georgiana herself. I certainly have made an awful-looking thing of it, thought Valancy but she did not feel repentant, only sorry she had offended her mother. Things would be so uncomfortable until she was forgiven. Mrs. Frederick was one of those women who can make their anger felt all over a house. Walls and doors are no protection from it. You'd better go downtown and get the mail, said Cousin Stickles when Valancy went in. I can't go. I feel all sort of peaky and piney this spring. I want you to stop at the drugstore and get me a bottle of Redfern's... Blood bitters. There's nothing like reverence bitters for building a body up. Cousin James says the purple pills are the best, but I know better. 
my poor dear husband took Redfern's bitters right up to the day he died. Don't let them charge you more than ninety cents. I can get it for that at the port. And what have you been saying to your poor mother? Do you ever stop to think, Doss, that you can only have one mother? One is enough for me, thought Valency, undutifully, as she went uptown. She got Cousin Stickle's bottle of bitters, and then she went to the post office and asked for her mail at the general delivery. Her mother did not have a box. They got too little mail to bother with it. Valency did not expect any mail, except the Christian Times, which was the only paper they took. They hardly got other letters. But Valency rather liked to stand in the office and watch Mr. Carew, the grey-haired, Santa Clausy old clerk, handing out letters to the lucky people who did get them. He did it with such a detached, impersonal, Jove-like air, as if it did not matter in the least to him what supernal joys or shattering horrors might be in those letters for the people to whom they were addressed. Letters had a fascination for Valancy, perhaps because she so seldom got any. In her blue castle, exciting epistles, bound with silk and sealed with crimson, were always being brought to her by pages in livery of gold and blue. But in her real life, her only letters were occasional perfunctory notes from relatives or an advertising circular. Consequently, she was immensely surprised when Mr. Carew, looking even more Jovian than usual, poked a letter out to her. Yes, it was addressed to her plainly, in a fierce black hand, Miss Valency Sterling, Elm Street, Deerwood, and the postmark was Montreal. Valency picked it up with a little quickening of her breath. Montreal? It must be from Dr. Trent. He had remembered her after all. Valency met Uncle Benjamin coming in as she was going out and was glad the letter was safely in her bag. What, said Uncle Benjamin, is the difference between a donkey and a postage stamp? I don't know. What, answered Valency dutifully. One you lick with a stick and the other you stick with a lick. Ha ha. Uncle Benjamin passed in, tremendously pleased with himself. Cousin Stickles pounced on the times when Valancy got home, but it did not occur to her to ask if there were any letters. Mrs. Frederick would have asked it, but Mrs. Frederick's lips were a present sealed. Valancy was glad of this. If her mother had asked if there were any letters, Valancy would have had to admit there was. Then she would have had to let her mother and Cousin Stickles read the letter, and all would be discovered. Her heart acted strangely on the way upstairs and she sat down by her window for a few minutes before opening the letter. She felt very guilty and deceitful. She had never before kept a letter secret from her mother. Every letter she had ever written or received had been read by Mrs. Frederick. That had never mattered. Valancy had never anything to hide. But this did matter. She could not have anyone see this letter. But her fingers trembled with a consciousness of wickedness and unfilial conduct as she opened it, trembled a little too, perhaps with apprehension. She felt quite sure there was nothing seriously wrong with her heart, but one never knew. Dr. Trent's letter was like himself, blunt, abrupt, concise, wasting no words. Dr. Trent never beat about the bush. Dear Miss Sterling. And then, a page of black, positive writing. Valancy seemed to read it at a glance. She dropped it on her lap, her face ghost-white. Dr. Trent told her that she had a very dangerous and fatal form of a heart disease, angina pectoris, 
evidently complicated with an aneurysm, whatever that was, and in the last stages. He said, without mincing matters, that nothing could be done for her. If she took great care of herself, she might live a year, but she might also die at any moment. Dr. Trent never troubled himself about euphemisms. She must be careful to avoid all excitement and all severe muscular efforts. She must eat and drink moderately. She must never run. She must go upstairs and uphill with great care. Any sudden jolt or shock might be fatal. She was to get the prescription he enclosed filled and carry it with her always, taking a dose whenever her attacks came on. And he was hers truly, H.B. Trent. Fancy sat for a long while by her window. Outside was a world drowned in the light of a spring afternoon. Skies entrancingly blue. Winds perfumed and free, lovely soft blue hazes at the end of a street. Over at the railway station, a group of young girls was waiting for a train. She could hear their laughter as they chattered and joked. The train roared in and roared out again. But none of these things had any reality. Nothing had any reality except the fact that she only had another year to live. When she was tired of sitting at the window, she went over and lay down on her bed, staring at the cracked, discoloured ceiling. The curious numbness that follows in a staggering blow possessed her. She did not feel anything except a boundless surprise and incredulity, behind which was the conviction that Dr. Trent knew his business and that she, Valency Sterling, who had never lived, was about to die. When the gong rang for supper, Valency got up and went downstairs mechanically from force of habit. She wondered that she had been let alone so long, but of course, her mother would not pay any attention to her just now. Valency was thankful for this. She thought the quarrel over the rose bush had been really, as Mrs. Frederick herself might have said, providential. She could not eat anything, but both Mrs. Frederick and Cousin Stickles thought this was because she was deservedly unhappy over her mother's attitude, and her lack of appetite was not commented on. Valancy forced herself to swallow a cup of tea, and then sat and watched the others eat, with an odd feeling that years had passed since she had sat with them at the dinner table. She found herself smiling inwardly to think what a commotion she could make if she chose. Let her merely tell them what was in Dr. Trent's letter, and there would be as much fuss made as if, Valancy thought bitterly, they really cared two straws about her. Dr. Trent's housekeeper got word from him today, said Cousin Stickles, so suddenly that Valancy jumped guiltily. Was there anything in Thoughtwaves? Mrs. Judd was talking to her uptown. They think his son will recover, but Dr. Trent wrote that if he did, he was going to take him abroad as soon as he was able to travel and wouldn't be back here for a year at least. That will not matter much to us said Mrs. Frederick majestically. He's not our doctor. I would not, here she looked or seemed to look accusingly right through Valancy, have him to doctor a sick cat. May I go upstairs and lie down, said Valancy faintly. I have a headache. What has given you a headache? asked Cousin Stickles, since Mrs. Frederick would not. The question has to be asked. Valancy could not be allowed to have headaches without interference. You ain't in the habit of having headaches. I hope you're not taking the mumps. Here, try a spoonful of vinegar. Piffle, said Valancy rudely, getting up from the table. 
She did not care just then if she were rude. She had had to be so polite all her life. If it had been possible for Cousin Stickles to turn pale, she would have. As it was not, she turned yellower. Are you sure you ain't feverish, Doss? You sound like it. You go and get right into bed, said Cousin Stickles, thoroughly alarmed. And I'll come up and rub your forehead and the back of your neck with Redford's liniment. Valency had reached the door, but she turned. I won't be rubbed in Redford's liniment, she said. Cousin Stickles stared and gasped. What, what do you mean? I said I won't be rubbed with Redford's liniment, repeated Valency. Horrid, sticky stuff. And it has the vilest smell of any liniment I ever saw. It's no good. And I want to be left alone, that's all. Valency went out, leaving Cousin Stickles aghast. She's feverish. She must be feverish, ejaculated Cousin Stickles. Mrs. Frederick went on eating her supper. It did not matter whether Valency was or was not feverish. Valency had been guilty of impertinence to her. Good night. <laughs>